0: To the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rice, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to explore a particularly creepy, real-life Victorian ghost story. It's the tale of a strange spirit, an uninvited guest, who disturbs his victims in the dead of night with strange sounds who seemingly can't be stopped by the police or even with bullets. And in one particularly nasty encounter, threatens to cut one poor girl's head off her shoulders. He threatens to decapitate somebody. And I don't know of many ghost stories out there in which people are threatened with decapitation, but that's exactly what happens in this terrifying account from the town of Cumbran. And so, to begin at the beginning. In the year of our Lord, 1884 a journalist known only as Special Reporter. Sadly, we don't have their name. Their byline is simply Special Reporter. Maybe maybe they didn't want to be associated with these horrific facts that they'd been sent to report on and which I will be recounting for you on this episode. Or maybe there was some other reason they wanted to keep a low profile. But whatever their reason, our Special Reporter was sent to Combran to investigate what are described as strange happenings. And he begins his account by setting the scene and it goes like this. Cumbran is excited. In all parts of the village, discussion is rife on the probabilities of some supernatural visitations, which are reported to have been recently made to the residents of Mr. Place, blast manager of the works and by works here he's talking about the industry that dominated Wales in the 19th century at the time of this report and to return to our special reporter's introduction he tells us that having heard various statements on the subject the supernatural subject I made it my duty last night to make personal inquiries into the matter so having heard many a strange first-hand account of supernatural activity in cumbran one dark and spooky september night our special reporter set off in search of the truth and he arrived in cumbran to find that to quote the moon withheld her light and the only indication that cumbran was neither dead nor sleeping was an occasional flickering from a cottage window Under these circumstances and imbued with a calm and curious spirit, I pursued my inquiries. So the scene is set. It's suitably gothic. All might appear calm, but it's pitch black. Just the flickering of the candles in the windows. And he sets off to Mr. Place's house because that is where he's been told at a late hour in the evening numbers of the villagers formed themselves into groups and visited there to look for the ghost in order to attest the truth of the rumors so the locals had formed their own little or maybe it was quite big by the sounds of it but their own group of ghost hunters a local bunch of ghostbusters who went to mr place's house late in the evening to try and track down these ghosts or ghosts and that is exactly where our journalist intended to start their inquiries but he didn't want to turn up as some nosy, out-of-town journalist. He wanted to go undercover as one of the crowd, as he describes it. So not not walking in with a, a trilby hat on with press written on it or anything like that. So he wanted to go undercover. He wanted to blend in. But one problem right from the start is that for such a big crowd outside such a well-known house, he couldn't find them. And he was, to quote consequently obliged to hire a guide in the person of a youth i picked up near the station so not a great start really if you're trying to blend in having to hire a guide because you don't know the local area is a slight giveaway but having arrived at the station and having found a guide they set off wending their way along some winding paths which included canal paths we are told and muddy lanes which led to mr place's residence which is situated about 300 yards beyond the blast furnaces in a rather lonely part of what the villagers are pleased to call the suburbs so this is what passed as the suburbs in 19th century wales or 19th century combran at least anyway houses sitting there in the shadow of the blast furnaces and he tells us that mr place's house adjoins two or three others and bears the appearance of being a highly desirable and comfortable place of residence so it sounds like a suitable place for a manager it might be a little bit out in the sticks but it sounds like a suitable place for a manager and he's not totally cut off there are two or three other houses here the only drawback to this seemingly idyllic life in the shadow of the blast furnaces is that of course it is haunted that's the whole reason the special reporter is there it's the whole reason i'm talking about it on this podcast and so to go back to the reporter the current story he tells us is that periodical visits are made to the rear part of this house by the spirit of a man dressed in a black coat and vest a wide-awake hat and moleskin trousers. So, this description of the ghost wouldn't have been that uncommon at the time. It's a man dressed in a black coat and vest, a wide-awake hat, moleskin trousers. And this spirit, having manifested, as he puts it, then alerts people to his or its presence by tapping at the kitchen window and blowing a whistle. These manifestations, we are told, have been frequent but only by two persons has the form actually been seen and as we'll discover later that might or might not be the case because there are more than two witnesses here but for the sake of this part of the story only by two people has the form been seen and they are a female servant and a policeman. And these two extremes, a female servant and a policeman, really do show the double standards of the period. And they're quite an interesting pair, I think, to have seen this form. Because a servant, especially a female servant, is seen as a very unreliable witness at the time in these kind of stories. They're seen as the kind of person who would either imagine it because that's what women did in victorian times they imagined all these fanciful things or it could be as a result of being a bad servant as somebody who wants to get one back over on their master and would play tricks on them and invent ghosts whereas the policeman on the other end of the scale the policeman was seen as being above suspicion if a policeman saw a ghost well it must be true because a policeman was never wrong. The total two extremes. But to go back to the reporter, because he tells us that regarding the matter superficially, I was inclined with others to treat the matter as a kind of hoax, and to think that the servant and the policeman had been fooled by a follower, in inverted commas. So somebody had followed them to the house, played these tricks, tapped the window, maybe done some whistling, and and, and run off into the darkness. But he says that the searching inquiries I made somewhat changed my mind. And I think that's quite an interesting line as well, because the reporter, quite rightly is looking at the evidence gathered so far. And while it's only been seen by two witnesses, granted, one of which, as as mentioned, would be considered to be quite unreliable, the other one would be considered to be very reliable. But nevertheless, there's only two witnesses. And the ghost's appearance does sound exactly like somebody in a costume. This isn't some ethereal thing or some poltergeist swirling things in the air. It's a ghost dressed in, if not contemporary clothing, certainly clothing that people in living memory might have seen. Somebody with a wide awake hat and moleskin trousers—a very similar description, actually, to a ghost I spoke about, or alleged ghost, I should say, but an alleged ghost I spoke about on episode eighty-five, where I talked about the the ghost of the hanged man who returned to the castle in Carmarthenshire. And there's no direct link to this tale at all. I just think it's interesting that similar things were going on at about the same time across Wales, and that means this wasn't an uncommon description for a ghost or a living person, whatever they might be. And in these early stages, it does seem to suggest there is a human, a living human involved. Because if we look beyond the description and at the activity This also suggests that this is a ghost that doesn't possess people or throw stones about with invisible hands. This is a ghost that taps at windows and whistles, the kind of paranormal activity I think most people listening to this podcast could probably imitate. But as he mentioned, the searching inquiries I made somewhat changed my mind. And so putting his scepticism to one side for the moment, he relates the facts the cold hard facts as they are to date and it goes like this it seems that the supernatural visits have been going on for the past three years so that suggests they started in 18 1881 and that although until recently no decided action has been taken by the occupier of the house they have caused him considerable annoyance. So he's been living with this activity until now. But three or four months ago, he engaged a new servant, a somewhat dull and ingenuous maid of 26. And as I was saying earlier, these are the unflattering ways in which servants, and in particular female servants, were often seen at the time. But she, like the subject of Edgar Allan Poe's raven, heard a tapping at the chamber door. And that wasn't just me shoehorning an Edgar Allan Poe reference in. That's a direct quote from the 1800s, almost contemporary. I mean, that was recorded in, well, certainly in the same century that Poe was born and died in. But anyway, I digress back to it. And having heard this raven tapping at the chamber door for a time I thought it was that and nothing more. But prompted by curiosity, she one night ventured to peep out. And there, according to her story, she saw the form of a man as already described. So, this represents an escalation of a haunting that has been going on for years but it's only after employing this as is described a somewhat dull and ingenuous maid of 26 that the ghost is seen and heard and to continue moved by this new feature of the case mr place sought the assistance of the police this is where our second witness comes in and for several nights police constable lawrence watched the premises with a vigilance worthy of a better cause and on one night last wednesday week about half past 11 had his curiosity satisfied by obtaining an ocular demonstration of the rumor which is a lovely victorian way of saying he saw the ghost. He had his curiosity satisfied by obtaining an ocular demonstration of the rumour. And he, to quote again, stoutly affirms that after hearing the tapping and whistling, he actually saw the form of a man approach the window and peer through. And with the valour of a policeman, he first threw his staff at the object and then fainted so to reiterate quickly with the valor of a policeman he first threw his staff at the object and then fainted and i'm sure you've gathered that in this sense the word valor i think is being used somewhat sarcastically here victorian sarcasm the policeman gets a fright he throws his staff at the ghost or what he believes to be a ghost at least and then passes out but there's more to the story so to continue on recovering he declared that directly he threw his staff the object vanished so that is why he fainted he wasn't just being a coward he saw this person that he threw his staff at vanished i'm assuming the staff had gone straight through him like like he wasn't there. And on another occasion, he sat up with the servant and awaited the coming of the spirit. It came and from the outside went through the usual performance. And by usual performance, I'm assuming they mean they could hear the tap in and they could hear the whistling coming from outside. And the constable and the girl immediately repaired to the door where the girl again claimed to be able to see the form that shape of a man outside although this time the policeman could not see a thing now comes a remarkable part in the story the reporter's words they're not mine and so i'll read you this remarkable part and so to quote with her hand clasped in that of the constable so the legend runneth so the old men tell a little bit more of a victorian sarcasm i think there or a victorian carry-on film maybe holding hands because of the ghost were you okay likely story but anyway i'm sure it was totally totally innocent but they clasped hands and she commenced conversing with the spirit So the spirit and the servant girl strike up a conversation and annoyingly, frustratingly. It's a little bit vague on the details here on how this communication is taking place. I mean, I'm assuming maybe she's she's hearing these voices in her head, like in a psychic way, maybe. But the reporter does use the word seance. He could be using this in a generic sense, just as in they had a seance, they had a chat. It could be a more literal sense, you know, as in using using something like a Ouija board or the equivalent for the period to communicate. But whatever was going on, however this communication was taking place, the spirit asks the servant girl who she was, to which she replies. And she says this aloud so the policeman can hear her talking. She says, I am a young woman. And if you want me, you must come to me. What do you want? Now, the constable wants to know what the ghost is saying in reply, because I'm assuming he's only getting half of the conversation here. He can hear what the girl is saying aloud, but using whatever communication techniques they're using, he can't hear the other half. And he asks the girl what the spirit's reply was to that question. What do you want? And she says, he says he wants to cut my bloody head off now just to be clear the word bloody i've inserted myself here because at the time this was printed bloody was a a curse word of the highest order and there is no way you could be printing words like that in publications that respectable people were going to read but we get an idea of what it is we know it starts with b and it fits the number of letters so i am 99.999% certain that the word is bloody. But he says he wants to cut my bloody head off. To which the girl replies, you won't do anything of the sort. And if you come here, I'll cut yours off. That's telling him, isn't it? Don't threaten to cut my bloody head off, because if you do, I'll cut your bloody head off. And on that note so ends the seance for the night. If a ghost threatens to decapitate you, you threaten them with decapitation back. And if it's anything like this ghost, off they scuffle. And talking about ghosts without heads, long-term listeners might remember that all the way back, all those years ago, back on the very first episode, I started by talking about ghosts with missing heads. And I could go off on a big tangent about that right now. But to go back to this ghost, which still has its head, this wasn't the only house it had targeted or Possibly there were multiple ghosts because the police had been called to another disturbance just next door. So maybe the Welsh suburbs, the Cumbran suburbs, aren't quite as idyllic as that description made them sound. Because the adjoining house also had their own form of supernatural activity as it's described going on. And to quote once more, about a month ago, a man came down from London to visit some friends who live in the house adjoining that of Mr. Place. He occupied the back bedroom. And about three o'clock one morning, he was awakened by what he thought was a noise on the roof. Rising up, he saw a form at the window so we can already see some similarities with our earlier accounts from the house next door he immediately sought his revolver now this is where it differs because yes this was back in the days when people traveled with revolvers by the sounds of it and they used them when strange forms appeared outside their bedroom window slightly ironic the policeman just had a stick to defend himself with but this man from london comes ready with a revolver but he sought his revolver and fired several shots at the form after which the form disappeared again sadly the details are a bit vague so i don't know if like the policeman claimed the bullets went through the form which is when it disappeared or whether he just disappeared in fright or whatever was going on as i said this is all the information we have but there are definite similarities going on here this form appears at the window and disappears when it's intended or potential victims we don't quite know what its intentions are but disappears when the the humans then or the living humans fight back be it with sticks or be it with with bullets. And the result of all of this was that after this man getting spooked and shooting off his gun, rumours quickly started to spread around the suburbs and beyond in Cumbran. It aroused a great curiosity in the locals, and parties began to visit the house at a late hour in the hope of receiving the same ocular proof, good old ocular proof again, ocular proof as the policeman declares that he did. It was then Mr. Place felt the annoyance and caused the police to interfere so we're coming full circle here back at the start when the reporter arrived he said there were groups of people gathering looking for ghosts well this is when it started when the adjoining house had reports of supernatural activity but again this sounds suspiciously like human agency it doesn't there's nothing in this story to suggest this was a ghost it just sounds like he saw someone at his window shot some bullets at them and things only get supernatural if those bullets then passed through their body causing them to disappear well to get back to the tale and our special reporter tells us that prompted by the same curiosity as the villagers i went to the house and watched anxiously for the spirit i watched until i began to sneeze and acting on this timely forewarning of an incipient cold i left It may be that I was too early or that it was not the spirit's night out. Anyhow, it failed to appear. And I am therefore obliged simply to record what I heard and not what I saw. I know from my professional experience in courts of law as a journalist and not as a member of the legal profession that this is not evidence and that an affidavit from the spirit itself would receive the court's most serious attention. And he wraps things up by asking us to have some respect for the honesty and the veracity for the accounts from people like the constable and the others he obtained his information from while he patiently awaits further developments and so after all of that what he's telling us is that he finally arrived at the supposedly haunted house gets a little bit of a sniffle the odd sneeze believes it to be the start of a cold and he calls it a day and says there is no conclusive evidence Maybe he was just too scared to stick it out any longer. Maybe he was just too bored. And this is one of those ghost stories from the Victorian period that I've mentioned many a time in the past, which are both wonderful tales and infuriatingly frustrating because they're written by a journalist who... Obviously I, I don't know personally, I'm not I'm not quite that old. I don't even know their name. It's just special reporter. But judging by their tone, you get the impression they are not taking the subject seriously at all. The editor has said something along the lines of look. Go to Cumberland there's a bunch of idiots think they've seen some ghosts. Go and see what's going on. And he's gone round and he's made some jokes and he's written some notes down. And what we end up with is actually quite an interesting sounding case. This ghost has clearly been seen by people in in multiple locations. People have shot bullets at it. Policemen have thrown sticks at it. Girls have communicated with it and claim it's going to chop off their head. And whatever is going on here or was going on there, paranormal or otherwise, I find fascinating. I mean, of course, if it is supernatural in nature, as some people claimed, then that is a fantastic case. If it's just some local man running around pretending to be a ghost, that's also a fascinating case. Sadly, all we have to go on is what is included in these reports as I've presented to you on this podcast. And as such, I'll just have to leave it to you, dear listener, to make up your own minds on what you think was going on in Victorian Cumbrian. And on that cryptic note, so ends another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast as always if you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't already please consider hitting the subscribe button and if you'd like to support the podcast you can treat me to a coffee via my website or failing that just give it a quick thumbs up or five stars or a nice review or whatever the options are on whatever platform you are consuming this on and as i always say as well as a podcast i've also written a number of books on similar weird and wonderful subjects and the tale on this episode the original version from which i took the quotes from and the accounts from was published in my first book of ghost stories ghosts of wales accounts from the victorian archives and if you'd like to read this tale in its original form along with many other spine-chilling ghost stories from victorian wales it's available along with all my other books from all good bookshops offline and on And finally, just to wrap up this shameless bit of self-promotion at the end, but finally, you can, of course, also follow me on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram, if you want more updates on weird and wonderful things. All of which just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varjan am rando. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my ghosts and folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And if you do happen to find yourself woken in the middle of the night with a tapping at the window and the sound of whistling, then you could throw a stick at that ghost. You could shoot bullets from a revolver at that ghost. But maybe the best way of dealing with it is simply to threaten to cut off its bloody head. Until next time. Nusta.